0: come on back in and take your seats and we'll continue with our uh, teaching time together this morning. My name's Brad. If we haven't had the uh, opportunity to meet, I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho. And uh, if you drive through our community here in Willoughby and you drive uh, kind of 83rd and 204th, you'll see a very large building perched on the very highest point of land in Willoughby. And when a few years ago, when it opened, uh, it was open to the public for tours. Do you know what I'm talking about? The Mormon temple, that's right. So uh, the Mormon temple, when it was first open, you could go into it. Now, of course, it's closed. You can only for card-carrying uh, members. But um, I went on a tour with a little group of people. And our tour guide took us through all of the different places of it and showed us inside. And one of the things that the tour guide told us is that Um, This was the most expensive building per square foot in Western Canada because they wanted to use materials that signified how precious and valuable uh, the the precious materials, gold and marble and like all of these types uh, of things. And so our tour guide was meant to, they said it was meant to teach us aspects about theology, about God and about his character and how, you know, God was worthy of our best. And so at one point we came to this room And our tour guide said this was called the Celestial Room. It's just in one of those front kind of uh, off to the right or off to the left there. And so it's very, very high ceilings in it. And this light comes streaming in gently through the stained glass and crystal chandeliers. There's gold on the paneling. Uh, There's there's marble. There's wood. There's soft lighting. All of this type of stuff. And our guide explained to us in, in very reverent tones that this room was meant to symbolize heaven. And then we moved on to the next room. And as we were walking out of the room, one of the women that was on our tour leaned over to me and said, if this is what heaven is like, count me out. It's boring, and I've been in five-star hotels nicer than that. (laughs) Though it was slightly irreverent, she was asking, I think, a good question. And the question is... Like, what is heaven going to be like anyways? What images come to your mind when you think about heaven? Do you think about floating around on clouds with harps and wings or the nicest five-star hotel you've ever been in that you could check in for an eternal Sabbath? Like, what, what do you think about when you think about heaven? Thankfully, the Bible actually gives us uh, some insight as to what heaven will be like. It doesn't give us all of the high definition picture that we might really like to know about heaven, but it does give us enough clarity to live with certainty. And Pastor Wally's going to talk a little bit more about that last, uh, next week as we wrap up our teaching series in Revelation. But I think part of our fascination with heaven uh, comes with the territory as a human being of being just fascinated about the future. What does the future hold? Especially around this time of year, we start to think about, oh, 2018, what's it going to look like? What is the world future going to hold? You know, is there going to be war? Is there going to be all kinds of challenges in our future? What are the elements of hope as we move towards the future? Uh, Philosopher and theologian Dallas Willard suggests that we as human beings are wired to think about the future. It's as natural for us as breathing. And we want to know what the future holds. And so we've come to the point in the book of Revelation where John, who is seeing this succession of visions about that God's revealing to him, some of which are about the present day and time, on our day and time, some of which are about spiritual realities happening now, this portion of it is actually about the future, actually about things that are not yet happened, have not yet happened. And so here in chapter 21 and 22, we have, as author Pastor Daryl Johnson says, a picture of the future drawn by the one who holds the future. And so it's a great picture for us to look at. So turn with me in your Bibles or on your device to Revelation chapter 21. And I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. I'll read the first eight verses. Then I'll keep going because in the first eight verses, John does what he's done a few times already before in the book of Revelation. He gives us a picture. And then from uh, starting in verse 9, he then goes into more and more details, but it's of the exact same thing. So Revelation chapter 21, and then I'm going to read through till uh, chapter 22, verse 5, but the first eight verses will come up on the screen. John says, in his vision, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven and old earth had disappeared and the sea was also gone. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed. For her husband. We talked about that image last week. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain because all of these things are gone forever and the one sitting on the throne said look I am making everything new and then he said to me write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true and he also said it is finished I am the alpha the beginning I am the omega I'm the end the beginning and the end to all who are thirsty I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and all liars, their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And that came up in chapter, at the end of chapter 20, the notion of judgment. Then going on in verse 9, one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls, which we talked about, containing the seven last plagues, came and said to me, Come with me, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And so he took me in the Spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. Descending out of heaven from God, and it shone with the glory of God, and it sparkled like a precious stone, like jasper, as clear as crystal. The city wall was broad and high, with twelve gates guarded by twelve angels. The names of the twelve tribes of Israel were written on the gates. There were three gates on each side, east, north, south, and west, and the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were written the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb." So this Old Testament, New Testament connection again, and 12, that number of completeness. The angel who talked to me held in his hand a gold measuring stick to measure the city, its gates and its wall. When he measured it, he found it was square. It was as wide as it was long. In fact, its length and its width and its height were each 1,400 miles. And then he measured the walls, and he found them to be 216 feet thick, according to the human standard used by the angel. So the wall was made of jasper, and the city was pure gold, as clear as glass. The wall of the city was built on foundation stones inlaid with 12 precious stones. The first was jasper, then sapphire, then agite, emerald, onyx, Carnelian, the seventh was chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth, who knows how to say it, the eleventh, jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were made out of pearls, each gate from a single pearl. Can you imagine that oyster? And the main street was pure gold, as clear as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. And the city had no need of the sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city. The Lamb is its light. The nations will walk in its light. The kings of the world will enter the city with all of their glory. And its gates will never be closed at the end of the day because there's no night there. And all of the nations will bring their glory and their honor into the city. Nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book Of life, Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street and on each side of the river grew a tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. And the leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations because no longer will there be a curse on anything. For the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there. And his servants will worship him and they will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads and there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun for the Lord God will shine on them and they will reign forever and ever. It's an incredible picture for us because it it gives us some insight into aspects of heaven that God wants to reveal to us. But it also actually talks about a number of things that will not be in heaven. So let's start with things that we learn in this text that will not be in heaven. There's seven things that will not be in heaven. The first one is right in the first verse. Of chapter 21. John says in his vision of heaven, the sea is gone. You think to yourself, what's that about? Why does the sea disappear? Does that mean there'll be no water in heaven? What's he talking about? Well, for ancient peoples, the sea symbolized chaos because it was unpredictable. The forces of, of chaos And darkness that sought to undo all that was good and right with the world were usually represented in most ancient cultures by the sea. If you think back to the language of Genesis 1, darkness is hovering over the waters. And the Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the water. And God then creates order out of chaos. In our life journaling reading in the Psalms, This last month we've come regularly up against the image of things like pounding or crashing waves being the language that the psalmist uses to express I'm just overwhelmed by things or in revelation itself uh, one of the beasts actually comes up out of the sea and so the fact that there's no sea in heaven John's trying to signal something here and he's trying to help us understand that the forces of chaos are gone. There's no more wildfires driving hundreds of thousands of people from their homes. There's no more typhoons or hurricanes wreaking havoc. There's no more earthquakes. There's no more places where chaos reigns. One of my seminary professors, David Ewart, says it this way, the great hope of the saints, is that in the end, all the limitations, all of the problems, and all of the terrors that characterize our world today will forever be done away. Chaos is having its day, but its day will end, and one day it will be no more. And so that's what John is trying to signal for us when he talks about the sea, because that's good news Because the second thing we learn that we will not find in heaven is tears, death, sorrow, crying, and pain. God will wipe away, not some, but every tear, the text says, from their eyes. There's no tears in heaven. Sorry, Eric Clapton. (laughs) And the reason for this is not because God doesn't like sadness, but because That anything and everything that would cause tears, pain, sorrow, sadness, and crying, all evil and death are not allowed into the new heaven and the new earth. See, friends, no matter how sophisticated we become as a culture or as a global community, technologically, culturally, in any other way, there are facets of life that are still with us tears, death, sorrow, crying, and pain. Ultimately, when we think about our own futures, we come face to face with our own mortality. But John's vision of heaven reminds us that one day all of the things that rob us of life will disappear, including death. Death is the last enemy to be defeated, but ultimately, even death dies. The death of death is portrayed in 1 Corinthians fifteen, twenty-four to 26. The Apostle Paul, writing about a picture that God has given him, says, after that, the end will come. When he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father... Having destroyed every ruler, every authority, every power that sets itself up against God, every anti-Christ, and Christ must reign until he humbles all of his enemies beneath his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. You will not find death in heaven. This is why the scripture uses the phrase eternal life, life that goes on forever, This past week, this became very personal for me and for our family. My grandfather had a stroke a couple of weeks ago, and uh, he was in palliative care for the last uh, number of weeks. And then on Tuesday evening, uh, he passed away. And on Monday, I was able to, my my mother had flown out uh, and her siblings to be with him. And on Monday, I was able to, to call and talk with her And uh, she was able to hold the phone up for him, and I was able to say goodbye and thank you and I love you. And so our family shed a lot of tears this week, uh, and it's kind of hard to preach on heaven in a week when you know someone that's just been promoted there. Um, But we're going to shed some more tears when we gather together in Toronto this next week for his funeral service. But when we gather, because he was a person who knew Jesus as his Lord and as his Savior. We don't grieve without hope. We don't grieve. When I said goodbye to him, it was goodbye for now. A, a sense of separation for us, but not without hope. And the hope that of heaven is not this hope of kind of wishful thinking, like I just, I hope maybe, maybe, maybe that I'll see him again one day. It's this anchored hope that comes from this deep conviction that those who die and have placed their trust in Jesus as their forgiver and their leader will be raised to eternal life in heaven one day. So I love the way that Daryl Johnson puts it. He says, like, we just have to face the fact that all of us are going to die. Each of us is going to give an account for our lives. The first option is to take a stand on the basis of what we have done with our lives. Saying to God, I'm a good person. Let me into heaven. The second option is to take a stand on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done with his life. I shall exercise option two because I find no hope in option one. I know myself. I know my life. I know the things that I have done. And if I stand before God one day, I cannot anticipate an entrance into his eternal kingdom, just saying, yeah, God, I was a pretty good person. The classic question actually still stands. What would you say if you were to die tonight and you found yourself standing before God and God were to ask you, on what basis should you enjoy eternal life with me? Friend, it cannot be on the basis of, I was a good person. I was better than so-and-so. And the reason that it can't be is contained in the third thing that will not be in heaven. There will not be any unkingdom like traits and behaviors in heaven. The list is cowards, unbelievers, corrupt murderers, sexual and immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and all liars. So it's noted for us time and time and time again in the Bible that we will harvest what we plant. We will reap what we sow. And there's the, a warning again and again to us that says you cannot live how you want and inherit the kingdom of God if you persist in willful, sinful patterns of behavior. In Galatians chapter five, verse 20, Paul says, "Let me tell you again, as I have before, anyone living that sort of life, and he's just listed a whole bunch of things, will not inherit the kingdom of God." See, each and every person is in line for an inheritance, an eternal inheritance. And this inheritance is kind of pictured in various ways. Sometimes it's pictured as jewels in crowns or square footage in your mansion that you're going to occupy up yonder. But while somewhat trite, what those things are hinting at is part of the reality of the future. And it's not unclear throughout the New Testament that Jesus intends at his second advent to come pass out inheritance money or inheritance, shouldn't say money. Jesus says in Matthew 25, when I come again in my glory with all the angels with me, I will sit on a glorious throne and all of the nations will be gathered in my presence and I will judge, I will separate the people. Just like a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And the separation is is around these character traits and qualities and behaviors because no character traits or behaviors that are inconsistent with the kingdom will be allowed into heaven. Jesus says it this way in Revelation 22, verse 12. So I'm stealing probably Wally's key text for next weekend. But Jesus says, I am coming soon. And when I come, I am bringing my reward with me. I am going to repay all people according to their deeds. Revelation 22, verse 12. I'm bringing my reward with me. And the reward is a repayment according to deeds. But see, here we come up against a dilemma. Because you might ask, well, Brad, didn't you just say earlier, Like the only question asked of me at the pearly gates, you see where we get this odd phrase from now, the pearly gates, because the gates are made out of pearls in John's picture, is, is your trust in Jesus and his atoning work on the cross. But now you said that Jesus is saying he's coming to bring a reward with him according to my deeds. Like which is it? Is Jesus going to judge me based on my deeds, on what I do, or is he going to judge me based on what I have done with him and his life and his saving sacrifice on the cross. The book of James wrestles with this question and this tension point. And James asks over and over again this tension of faith or works, faith or works. What's the one that saves us? What is it that saves us? What's the mechanism by which we experience that? Well, this year actually marks the 500th anniversary since the Reformation, the great movement in the history of the church, where this question came in a very pronounced way to a head. And Martin Luther and many, many others were adamant in their teachings and understandings of the scripture that we are justified, we are made right with God solely on the basis of faith in Christ. Christ. But Luther was also abundantly clear that our faith in Christ does not free us from works. It frees us from false opinions concerning works. That is, from the foolish presumption that justification is acquired by our works. So, what Luther and others are saying throughout history is deeds matter. What you do matters. And the reason that it matters is because one of the surest indicators or reliable indicators of where our faith is lies in how we live that faith out in our actions. So you might see, you know, things on your social media feeds around uh, this month like, Keep Christ in Christmas. There's a good one that I like that says, Keep Christ in Christmas. Feed the hungry, clothe the naked, take care of the widows and orphans and strangers. Like that's keeping Christ in Christmas. (laughs) How you act matters. What you do matters because every person in the world is in line for an eternal inheritance. And no one whose inheritance is built on unrepentant cowardice, Unbelief, murderous thoughts and actions, witchcraft, idolatry, or untruth will be able to inherit the kingdom of God. How you and I live matters. There's a lot more that could be said about that, but we have to keep going. Otherwise, we're not going to get through my 14 points. So, there is not my, um, the fourth thing that will not be in heaven the temple. Uh, John's picture of heaven is that it's like a city, it's like a holy city, and starting in verse 10 of Revelation 21, his description just begins to get even more and more mind-bending, we have gold that's as clear as glass, pearls the size of city gates, And again, we need to be consistent with the way that we approach the book of Revelation because John is not now, suddenly as we get to the end of the book, going to flip over and switch into literalism in his vision of heaven. We're grasping at the very limitations of human language to try and describe divine realities. And John's just trying to get his mind around what he's seeing. And his visions and what's transpiring have been packed with these sort of Poetic type images and pictures and the point that John is trying to make here is not so much for you to get an image of a Structure in your head some of you are in construction, and you're like okay. I've got the dimensions. Could I build this thing? I've got the building materials, you know There's all of these types of stones and all of that, you know Well, how in the world would you pave a street? Why would you pave a street with a soft metal like gold that seems ridiculous? John's just simply saying to us, he's taking the most valuable materials that he knows in his world and trying to describe for us that which is indescribable in human language. And what what really strikes John here and stuns him most is that there's no temple. It's not the construction of the city or anything. He's just, he's measuring the city and going around. He's like, but where's the temple? Where's the, where is the temple in this place? Because it would be so startling for a first century Jewish mind to try and think of any place to connect with God that didn't have a temple. You go to a place, the temple, where there's a time. You conduct a set religious ritual, and that's how you connect with God. And John just blows that whole notion to smithereens and says, in heaven, you don't need any temple because the whole city is sacred space. God fills the entirety of it, every crack and crevice, so there's no need for a temple. And John further reinforces this with his city dimensions. It's a cube. And if you can think back to the Old Testament temple, the Holy of Holies was a cube. It was actually a perfect square overlaid with gold. And so John keeps making these linkages back in Revelation 21 and 22, back into the Old Testament, back into Ezekiel, back into Isaiah, and things that we're not as familiar with, but his first readers would have gone immediately, oh, I know what John is saying. This city, this new Jerusalem, is is where God is meeting with his people. And modern measurements actually obscure. Most translations actually choose to go with things like kilometers and miles because that's what we know. But the modern measurements actually obscure John's point. John's original measurements are 12,000 stadia and 144 cubits. Again, 12 times 12. And the approximate measurements of this city is from about Vancouver to Winnipeg. And it's as wide as it is tall as it is high But John's not making that point. Like, we can visualize that in in our day and age of uh, airline travel and all kinds of physics and all those types of things. For John's early readers, they would have just gone, (laughs) that place is huge, man. (laughs) And what John is trying to say is there is room for all of us here in God's family. There's room. Don't, heaven's not filled up. There's going to be room for those who choose to enter perfection in every way. Number five, the, f- the fifth thing John says will not be in the new Jerusalem or in heaven, the sun or the moon. The city has no need of it. Uh, for the glory of God is the illuminating reality in the city, the lamb itself. God is its light. More on this a little bit later. Number six thing that you will not find in there. Gates that close. Its gates will never be closed at the end of the day because there is no night. Now think about, again, in an ancient context, uh, a city needed walls to protect it from invaders and from animals and anything else that would want to come in. And so if you had a, a city that had walls, then you put in some nice strong gates. And then at night, when you wanted to rest... You just closed the gates. Everybody inside the city was safe. Everything bad was outside the city. And that's how you kind of protected yourself from harm for security purposes. But John says, yeah, no need for any of that because absolutely nothing coming in or out of this place will cause harm or pain to anyone or anything. There are no security systems necessary. There's no home invasions that will happen, no robberies. We just don't need any gates. They'll never be shut. The seventh and final thing that you will not find in heaven is the impact of the curse. In Revelation 22, verse 3, John says that we will not, the curse will be broken, it will be undone. No longer will there be a curse upon anything. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the story in Genesis, when sin and when evil enter the world, when humanity rebels against God and says, no, thank you, we can do this on our own, we will proclaim independence, the curse enters the world. Genesis 3 actually outlines the specifics of the curse. The ground is actually cursed. Human relationships experience distortion, where males seek to rule over females in unhealthy and inappropriate ways, where childbirth becomes a painful experience. All of these are realities of the curse. But in the new heaven and the new earth, the full impact of humanity's rebellion against God comes unraveled and undone. And the blessings of God so overrun the place that there's no trace of the curse anymore. One of my favorite Christmas carols is Joy to the World. And there's a line in it that we don't often think about. But it it declares this powerful reality of confident hope about the future. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Language of Genesis 3, the curse being undone or broken. Because he comes. And when he comes, Jesus, he comes to make his blessings flow as far as a curse is found. Every place that has been touched by that curse in your life, in mine, and in our world, one day will be undone and overrun with blessings. I, one of the things that's been just incredible and very, quite impactful for me as we've gone through Revelation is I've started to realize how many of our worship songs are actually like straight out of Revelation or they're like way better when they're placed in the context of Revelation. Because Revelation is a, is a worship manual, a worship book teaching us, talking to us about how this incredible unfolding of God's purposes and plans begin to get itself worked out in our world, both now and in the future. So those are the things that will not be in heaven. But we see also in this seven things that you will find in heaven. So let's look at those. So the first thing that John is quite clear on that he experiences and sees in his vision is in heaven you'll find God's presence. One of God's saving purposes in redemptive history is to satisfy the deepest longings of our heart for relationship. We were created for relationship with God. And in heaven... We will find this realized. This is the ultimate fulfillment of God's ultimate promise. It's one of the most repeated promises in the scriptures. I will be with you, relational language. And we get a foretaste of this, of God's presence, when we think about and we celebrate Advent and Christmas. Because we remember that God actually decided and declared that He was not content to be distant, aloof, or uninvolved in our world. And so some 2,000 years ago, the second person of the triune God was so deeply interested in making his presence known that he came to earth and was born of a virgin and was wrapped up in strips of cloth and laid in a feeding trough for animals because he wanted... You and I to know and experience His presence. But I'm starting already to preach my Christmas Eve service, so I gotta save that. We gotta go to the second thing that will be in heaven. So God's presence but also God's glory. John brings it up again and again and again. Like what is, so yeah, God's presence, we understand a little bit of that in terms of relationship. What is God's glory? Well, um, the, the Greek language that Revelation was originally written in, the word glory is doxa, from which we get the word doxology. And doxa is a, a weight, a, a heaviness of God's revelation, of self-manifestation. Glory is when God chooses to kind of pull back the curtain a little bit and let you see and experience a part of who God is. In the Old Testament, people would, would ask for this. Moses just would say, God, would you show us your glory? At the temple... There was a, a weight, a physical weight that overwhelmed people when they came to worship and God's glory filled the place, his presence. Sometimes we get the curtain pulled back just a little bit. I find it for me sometimes in worship and song and my breath is just taken away by some picture or some aspect of God's character that he chooses to reveal and you just think, oh my goodness, I'm just getting, like, an appetizer, a little taste of this. And when on earth, when we experience something glorious, like a sunset or a mountain range or whatever it is for you, we have to think to ourselves, man, if earth's glory is merely just a little foretaste and there's some pretty glorious stuff here on earth that we get to experience, oh, man, Heaven's going to be awesome. It's going to be incredible. So the third thing that this passage shows us is that will be in heaven, and I cannot think of a great phrase to describe this, is stuff. <laughs> there will be stuff in heaven. That might be all you remember from the what heaven is like message. Oh, well, Revelation, Pastor Brad said there'll be stuff in heaven. I don't remember what the stuff was, but, but what I mean by that is like tangible stuff. Um, Like, look at the images that are given to us in Revelation 21 and 22. It's things like walls and gates and streets and trees and fruit and river and thrones and, like, all of this stuff. Language goes on and on and on of things that we know. We're like, oh, yeah, I know what a wall is. Oh, yeah, I know what a gate is. There's the stuff of it. Why does John keep on and on about this tangible stuff? What does he want us to understand? I think it might be to help combat... A very common misconception about heaven. Now, I I have tested this with a few other people. But when I was a kid, we sang a little song. Uh, it was called the countdown song. Does anyone else know what this this song at all? Okay, Miriam, David. Oh, okay. So like three of the whole of the three of us know this song. So I will sing it for you because it contains absolutely horrible theology and no one should sing it ever, right? So the words are this. Somewhere in outer space, God has prepared a place for those who trust him and obey. Jesus will come again, although we don't know when. The countdown's getting lower every day and then you count it down. 10 and 9, 8 and 7, 6 and 5 and 4. Call upon the Savior while you may. 3 and 2 coming through the clouds in bright array. Countdown's getting lower every day. I think it was a Child Evangelism Fellowship song, thanks. But like that first line always stuck with me. Somewhere in outer space, God has prepared a place. And for whatever reason then, that became my defined theology of heaven. It was in outer space somewhere. And one day, Jesus was probably going to like grab one of those big UFO spaceship type things, zoom onto our universe and whoop, take me. And then we'd go up to heaven, and this would be great, and this was how it was all going to happen. And so I think one of the things that John is trying to say by putting a bunch of stuff into this picture is a gang.